Welcome back to this week's episode of the Coger Center Arts Roundup podcast. This is the Coger Center Arts Roundup. Our special guest today is Philip Mullen. Uh, we have a new exhibit of his opening. Well, it'll be up in the gallery at the Coger Center starting on the 18th of March, but we've got a gallery opening with a little talk on April the 18th. I'd like to welcome to the studio Dr. Philip Mullen. Hey, thank you, Nate. Um, so we're excited. I mean, excited is, a, is maybe not a strong enough word, but very excited that you are uh, gracing us with this brand new set of work in part because we have been enjoying the work in the lobby for the past 30 years, and now we get to see a whole different, new and exciting set of uh, work that you've been working on, some of it for as long as the building has been open. Is that true? That's, well, yes. It, actually, it's quite a treat to get to show the new work with this. There's one piece that's going to be shown in, in the show. It's uh, it's It's the largest of the new pieces. It's six feet high, 10 feet wide. And uh, I stretched the canvas and started working on the stretched canvas that it's on in 1992. However, in 91 and 92, I had realized that I had a resource that no other artist had, and that was tons of my own old paintings that had not worked out, but they had great sections to them. And so for those two years, I was cutting up the old paintings and collaging them into the new ones. And it's pretty easy for me to date some of the pieces by the types of surfaces I was using and all. And so one of the uh, sections of that, actually more than one of the sections, was done in 1976. Well, I've gotten into the habit of, as, I, as, as a painting has even been declared finished, shown, and in some cases reproduced in publications, I feel perfectly free to go back and continue to develop them. Well, I went back at near the end of last year, redeveloped this piece, and finished it as it is now finished this year, 2020. So it is a piece that uh, was 44 years in the making. So one of the questions I was going to have for you is, how do you as an artist decide that a piece is finished? Well, one of the things that I've decided is that finished is a very artificial notion. You know, I like to think about it like a conversation. You go out to lunch. You have a conversation with somebody. Um, you finish lunch. You go back to work. The conversation is over. But then you go out to lunch with the same person the next week, and they say, you know, about what we were talking about last week, well, apparently the conversation wasn't over. So I, I like to think of paintings as having that same sort of fluidness in terms of being finished. Now, I do have some pieces that are probably so definitive of a particular type of work that I did at some point that the chances of ever touching them again is almost nil. And certainly the pieces that are owned by other people, they're not going to be developed anymore, especially if they're owned by other people and they're far away from here and I've lost touch with who those other people are. But, yeah, to me the whole idea of it being finished is sort of superficial. It's the notion that it keeps going on and on. And... I think actually one of the things that makes this recent group of paintings so rich is that I have felt so much freedom on so many pieces to go back and continue to develop them after they were declared finished once or twice that um, they get to them a more, more, more character, more life, more development. You know, and it's not necessarily a the kind of linear development that a beginning beginning painter might think, where you make some plan as to where you're going and you head there. Heck, if I knew where my piece was headed, I'd quit making it. I'd be bored to death. You know, because I'm making them to find out what they develop into. Do you 
as the paintings develop, do you document along the way? So when you consider something perhaps finished once and then perhaps finished a second time, do you have photo documentation of that so that you can go back and, and show other people its stages of development as it went? On some of them, yes. On most of them, of course, no. Yeah, I'd be photographing my life away. Um, I've got. I, I, I've recently given two two by recently in the last three weeks given two talk two PowerPoint lectures to different groups, and in these PowerPoint lectures, unlike most art lectures where you see a lot of works, only five works show up in the entire lecture, and the first two are only to establish scale. You know, one of them is a uh, seven-foot-high by 15-foot-wide painting with a small child standing in front of it, and so, you know, you get a sense of the scale. And the other one is uh, myself standing in my studio with two seven-foot-high by five-foot-wide paintings. And then the first half of the lecture basically follows the trail of a painting being made that was finished in... 1998, and since it's in a, it's six by ten feet, and since it's in a private collection in Connecticut, I guess we'd have to say that one's finished. And it was it was done in a certain way that followed some guidelines that we probably would have given students in terms of developing. And then the second part follows a painting that is in this current show, and. It starts by showing what, how it looked the very first day I started it, which was in 1917, uh, 2017. I wasn't even around in 1917. <laughs> in 2017. And it shows how it was finished in 2018 and titled uh, A History of Shadows, Part 3. It stayed finished like that for about five months, and I realized that... I could do something more with it. So I took off work, working on it again and finished it again in 2019 as Figure with Blue Line. Now, that one not only was documented, but I have prepared a, a series of photographs and framed them up that will be in the show next to that piece so that uh, anybody coming to the show can follow how that piece developed. And I will tell you, uh, you know, one of these talks was to a local uh, artist group. Artists are surprised at the way I develop them because, you know, most beginning artists think in terms of somehow thinking it out ahead of time. And I think of it more like to go back to that conversation thing. More like if we go to lunch and we're going to have a conversation, I may have a notion of something I want to talk about. I certainly don't have it outlined how it's going to develop. Although that could be funny. You know, we could someday, uh, we could go out to lunch and I could write up a script and we could we get there. I'll together. hand you your part. And I'll say, oh, hello, Nate. <laughs> and you'll say, oh, wait a minute, i got to find my place. Oh, yeah. Hello, Philip. How are you? And we, it might be funny one time through, but eventually it would get to be pretty meaningless. And I guess I feel the same way about developing a painting. So with that concept in mind, uh, I feel like you are well-known for these large-scale paintings. Um, I know that not everything you do is necessarily huge, but what we mostly have at the Kogar Center, for example, are larger-scale paintings. Do you pick the size of the canvas before you start? I'm always wondering uh, when your uh, artists start with a canvas, and usually, I guess it's a finite size, so you have an idea. Do you ever turn something that was once maybe a 6 by 10 into something much smaller because you realize you've bit off more space than you need? Uh, how do you pick the scale of what you're working on? Okay, I do, I do cut down paintings if that... I mean, when you do that, it's a real pain because you have to rebuild the stretcher <laughs> to start with. Right. I mean, there's a lot of yes. shifting to do that, and I have done that. I've not done it because... I bit off more than I could chew. I, I've done it because as the thing developed, you didn't need one part of it worked really well, and it was a clear taking off of a section. You know, very often I find um, if I'm looking at, back when I was teaching at the university, if I was looking at student works, 
one of the ways to improve composition was constantly to cut off half of the painting because they had focused on something in one half of it. But, you know, one of the problems about being a beginning a beginner at painting is that you kind of get cold feet that it's not interesting and you start throwing stuff in as though that will make it interesting when what really will make it interesting is a kind of focus and somehow making it better. But, you know, part of it has to do with the energy you're going into it with. Part of it has to do, you know, I start with a very basic sort of concept. Uh, and when I say basic, Sometimes it, it's so basic that it has no intention of being a painting. Um, and if, if, for example, I'm using a figure in a painting, it probably is wise not to make the figure larger than life-size unless I want it to somehow turn into a god or monster, which is exactly what usually happens with them larger. So that says, okay, you're going to stay below a certain scale on that figure. Um, for, for a great deal of my career and for uh, certainly most of my years of New York shows, the smallest pieces I exhibited were four by th three by four feet, four by three feet. Now, that for me is a small piece. That's just a little less than half the size of the smallest pieces you have at Decoger which are six feet by four foot four. Um, but I could, I could not successfully make smaller paintings. The few cases where I made a smaller painting, I, I could have made five or six of those bigger ones in the same time. I, I just couldn't do it. And then at some point, I, there was a, a kind of intimacy I wanted in some pieces, and... All of a sudden, I was able to make these small pieces successfully. Happened uh, kind of somewhere in the 90s. So do you have, uh, can we talk about sort of stages of your career? Uh, I feel like at the Coger Center, we uh, have um, sort of three, what I would call, d different periods of painting style um, up. Uh, so can you talk about how you're, approach or your style or the outcome? I mean, maybe the approach is the same, but with the finished products, uh, yeah. how they have changed over the years, and do you have these different periods? We always talk about artists' different periods yeah. uh, through art history. Can you talk about how that is in your career? Yeah, sure. Clearly, you have some pretty good observational skills when you say that maybe they all hold together. And if you put them in a line... They hold together, but there are what appear to be some pretty drastic shifts that happen. And I can describe some of them for you. Um, I, my work, when I think about mature work, I would take 1969 as the earliest mature work. If I were putting together a retrospective and I wanted all good works in it, 69 would be the starting point. Is, and that's the year that you came to South Carolina? Is that, that true? That is the year I came. I came here based on the last of what I consider not my mature pieces. But they showed enough promise that it worked for, for coming here in the position. And I expected, I expected people coming into teaching college uh, art that that's pretty typical. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty tough on myself about what's a mature piece. You know, for example, some of the ones that I considered not mature were kind of didactic. And I'm a very anti-didactic art person now. I mean, it takes, when you do something that's really didactic, it seems to me that you're saying, I'm the artist. I know something you don't. I'm going to teach you this. Too much ego involved in that somehow. And... Telling people stuff like that just doesn't work anyhow. So, um, but this first group of work were basically figurative and mostly drawings. But one of the things that really differentiated my figure drawings from other people's was that I drew the air in the drawing so well. That's a hard thing for people to get a grip on. But when you see them, you say, oh, yeah, okay, I see how that happens. Now, you know, if somebody gave you the assignment of drawing air, 
uh, you'd be stumbling around for a while before you got a grip on that one. Well, after I'd done that for uh, from 69 to roughly 75, it occurred to me that the figures had become kind of habitual for me. They were really meaningful going in, but they'd gotten to be a habit, and the air was what I really wanted to do. So I said, okay, I'm just going to do some that are just of air. Well, as I mentioned before, you can only go so big with figures, but man, you can go as big as all outdoors with air, and it doesn't get freaky. So all of a sudden, the, I mean, some of the drawings were four by five feet. That's a pretty big drawing. Uh, but that's still not the kind of scale I could go with the air. People used to say when those, some people said when those first ones came out with the air in them, it would just air, they'd say, I had the feeling that if I looked at it long enough, the figure would show, would appear. <laughs> and I can, I can actually, I've got two pieces, one from 69 and one from 74. And when you put them side by side, no, they're not the same scale. One has a figure, one doesn't. But otherwise, they are so similar. And anybody looking at them initially would say, these are by two different artists. But, you know, in my mind, that was no more than somebody switching from doing landscapes to doing still lifes. I was switching from doing figures in air to doing just the air. But as you can guess, when you do drawings of air, it looks pretty abstract. (laughs) Yes. So um, where did you go from there? Well, those those ones with the air in... They started to, they got finished too quickly for me. I, I'm really involved in the process. I, I, I love the making of them, the changing of them. So I decided that what I needed to do is figure out a way to slow them down. So I started doing these canvases where I would divide them into sections and do the same painting in each section. So we take this one piece, and I happen to remember this because it actually was in the title of the piece. I divided a canvas that was six feet by four foot four into 1,350 sections. So every time I committed to doing a stroke, I committed to doing it 1,350 times, which took me somewhere between two and a half and four hours of concentrated work. Now that slowed it down so I was satisfied with getting in the process. It was like a visual meditation, that work. And um, it, it, it had the funny impact of I'd get about 15 minutes into it and my mind would be saying, what are you doing this for? You're some kind of a nut. But I'd get 20, 30 minutes into it and my mind would be like, why would anybody want to do anything else but this with their life? And sometimes I'd come to the end of doing them, the two and a half to four hours, and I felt I couldn't stop. I'd pick up another stroke, that was almost always a mistake. I didn't have the, you know, I I needed to go to lunch, I needed to come back, I needed to do something to get that back. But for anybody who meditates, I think that that, that probably that process would resonate with them. Uh, My first New York show was about those works. And after after that New York show, I started doing some silk screens on handmade paper. And the handmade paper is exactly what a good silk screener would not choose, especially the really irregular ones, because each piece doesn't look quite like the other pieces. And I thought that was wonderful as long as they all look good. Well, I had the interesting situation of the silk screens became clearly better than the paintings. And I didn't want to be a silk screen. I wanted to be a painter. I was showing with a gallery in New York that had such high expenses that if they put my silk screens on the wall, they wouldn't pay for the wall space. They needed paintings. And I had their attention, but because I'd had one show with them, but I wasn't sure if that second show was going to show up. And I thought, I've got to get these paintings to the level of the silk screens. And one of the things the silk screens had 
was instead of the, the, the segments in those ones I described before, a section would be something like one and a half by one inches or smaller or bigger, but, you know, roughly. But the, these little marks on the silk screens were about a quarter of an inch long. I needed to figure out how to make big paintings with those small marks. Now, you've got some of those at the Koger Center, so you know what I'm talking about with them. And so my second show had those paintings in it. And what it was doing was it was taking that um, idea of the small, repetitive mark that you get up and see closely to a greater extreme. That's one of the things I really believe in in making paintings and I really enjoy about the process is like, how do you, as you get moving on something, how do you push it as far as you can? And the only way you can ever find out if you can push it as far as you can is you have to go beyond as far as you can and fail at it. Artists who aren't failing are not trying enough. That's why I had all those canvases collected up. You gotta fail. If you're not failing, you're not succeeding. If that makes some sense. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay, and then you know, just to be a little more quickly, quick in going through some things, you know, then I decided I wanted to bring back some subject, and you see that sneaking back in in pieces at the Koger. And then eventually, um, it got that people were asking me too much about the technique. And my works for me have never been about the technique. The technique is kind of magical in some of them. Other painters cannot figure out how it was done, but that's not why I did those techniques. I simply developed what seemed to me to be the most direct route to get done what I wanted to do, and it, by some circumstance, ended up to be a very unique approach. And so I wanted to take, I wanted to back off from that and take out some of that magic. So that's when you see that small mark disappearing and you move into the third phase of what you have there, which are a little more easily readable for people in terms of how they're made. Now, all the paintings should look easy to make, or if not easy, maybe I should say organic, as if they just grow. You've all, you know, you've all gone and heard some speaker who gets up and they grab onto the podium and they're rattling it around and say, I'm so glad to, to, to be here with you tonight. And, and you feel so sorry for the poor sucker, you can't listen to what they're saying. Well, beginning painting often looks like that. You, you see how hard the person is straining to make happen what they're trying to make happen that you're not seeing what's happening. So I want mine to be so organic, so organic that they look like they grew there. So it's about the finished product and not the technique or the... The technique doesn't show through so much in the painting? Is that what you mean? Techniques do show through. I mean, certainly now oh. I'm starting to find out, you know, I'm starting to find out I, 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 in, in a lot of the pieces we're going to be showing in these new pieces, they involve uh, hieroglyphics that are carved into walls, and they're carved into the paintings. Now, I mean, I can't tell you how many painters even ask me, how do you do that? How do you make that happen? Well, I mean, it's very simple. You put the paint on thick, and while it's wet, you take, I take the back end of the brush, you know, the point end of the brush, and I draw with it. I say, whoa, whoa, what if you screw up? <laughs> well, then you smooth the paint out, <laughs> and you, and you do it again. And, yeah, you're right. I can't put it all over the whole canvas and do that. I have to do it in sections because it would dry before I, I you know, I can only draw so fast. Um so it's relatively simple, but again, I can see that it's starting to have a magical quality to how that's, uh, how that's done. But I wanted to look, you know, I mean, one of the things that was so great about seeing the hieroglyphics in the, 
in in the tombs and in the uh, pyramids and stuff in 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 Cairo, in Egypt in general, I should say, was that not only were the people who did it skilled enough that you didn't have a sense that they strained to do it, but these things had existed for years and years and centuries after that, and things happened to them. And that's part of the organicness of it. I want that organicness to happen. When drips happen in the paintings, sometimes you can see them. Um, you know, and I'll use, like there's a surface that I use that is sort of almost like craters into the paint. And initially I made that by simply putting on thick paint, taking a four-inch four wide house painter's brush, loading it with water, and throwing water into it, and it sort of makes it splatter. And that's an organic kind of way to do it. You know, eventually I couldn't move my wrist from doing that thousands of times <laughs> a day. And so I, I figured out that I could buy myself one of those sprayers that people use to put chemicals on their plants, put water in it, and spray it which then I found out I needed to build little gutters below my uh, easel for all the water that ran down into them. But, you know, but it ends up to be an organic sort of natural way of putting it together. And it's, it's actually, you know, if I, were, if, I, if I were giving you a painting lesson of some sort, I might say to you, it's really hard to make a good painting. But, you know, Nate, it's 10 times harder to make a good painting that looks like you haven't tried to make a good painting, that just looks organic as if it's just happened. So the uh, some of the new works have these hieroglyphics in it. So I'm assuming because you talked about uh, seeing these uh, hieroglyphics in Egypt, did you were you inspired on this from an actual trip there? Did you take? A yeah. Yes, uh, my uh, my life partner's daughter. Uh, has lived in Cairo for uh, many years. And uh, so we were over visiting her, and she was taking us around to some of those places. Is it your first visit, or have you been there before? My first visit. Yeah, and I came back, and of course, people, whenever I travel, people say, oh, were you inspired for this or that for the painting? But what they're thinking about is subject matter, usually. And generally, no, I'm not inspired by things well, in that sense. I may be inspired by seeing a kind of space that somehow does it. And I, because I got back and people ask about, would I be inspired by the hieroglyphics? I said, nah, that's not how it works. Of course, a month and a half later, I was eating my words on that one. <laughs> because, and, and this has to do with, the, with this consistency. If you go back and you think about when I was describing cutting those paintings up, making the little sections and repeating the marks, what the hieroglyphics do to me is they make me put in a whole lot of marks slow but I have to think about them. I can't, I can't just get in the habit and quickly make them because I'm copying something. Now, I'm doing it in a general enough sense that somebody who reads hieroglyphics could not read these, I don't think. I don't know that, but I don't think so. They probably could get little snatches or something. Uh, but what it does is it, it, it's a method where it forces that same kind of concentration that redoing those sections did. Do you work with someone who helps you curate exhibits, or have you always, for example, the one we're about to get next week, have you self-curated it? Have you put it together? I generally, uh, through most of my career, I tried not to self-curate. And actually, one of the things that I've done with this one, I will be self-curating to some extent, but Lauren, who's going to be working with me, I very specifically said, I want you making decisions here because one advantage she will have that I won't have is she'll just be looking at a painting in a space. I've got this history with them, you know? This one's my good kid. This one's my bad kid that gave me a hard time getting there. This is, you know, all that stuff. This is the one, this was, this was a big breakthrough for me in a way. I want people to see that. 
Well, right? that, that right doesn't make the, the best room. painting. Yeah. And I have pre-thought out a few things about where I want them. Uh, these are very, these particular paintings are very sensitive to where they hang. I've done a painting that looks great in my studio. I cannot hang it anywhere in my house that it looks decent. I've done other pieces that I know are good in the studio, but they don't really come alive till I put them in the house somewhere. And often it has to do with getting them in a place where the light shifts. Now, you know, this room, the, 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 the major room, what used to be the donor's room at the Koger Center that we'll be using, has glass for one wall. I love it. It means that those things are going to be different at different times. All throughout the day. And if I hang certain ones, especially probably on the walls that are not across from it, but they're sideways to that light, um, it, if somebody really wants to see the piece, they're going to have to come back multiple times at different times a day uh, to see it, you know, and... So I'm th I am thinking about that notion in it some. I had experience one. I had a show at the Heath Gallery in Atlanta in 1974, and it, it, it was it was a it was a wonderful gallery. It was a gallery that I got got my work into the Whitney Biennial, which was a big deal. I mean, I'm actually I'm the only artist who has ever ever in the history of the Whitney Biennial been in it while living in South Carolina. They just don't come here to select, and they didn't come here then to select. They got to Atlanta, and they chose two people, uh, one guy who actually lived there and me who had a show up there. But this show had nine large pieces, and these were the air pieces that we described. And then it had a series of very small paper pieces, and by small I'm talking about like six inches, eight inches dimension. And, but with these nine pieces, that was a basic show. But he had one spot in the gallery that was like the premier spot. And there were eight of the nine pieces that I would have been happy with there. Well, you know which one he put there, the ninth one. And you know what? That painting looked so good there. He made the right choice. He was doing it by looking at the painting and I had some history with the painting. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I would have never even thought to test it there. With my New York shows, I sent the shows to them generally four months before the show opened. I never saw them again until the show was completely hung. I would go in the day before the opening generally to see it. And uh, they did a much better job than I would ever have done with it. How did you land that first New York show? You were here in Columbia working at the university um, yeah. at, at the time. Well, you know, I had gotten into art under the influence of two abstract expressionist painters who were uh, painters first, teachers second, uh, and, and who had showed up at just the right time for me at the University of Minnesota when I was an undergraduate, not an art major. But I soon switched, not, I never did become an art major as an undergrad, but I soon devo was devoting most of my time to it. And those guys, you know, for them, the mecca for art was New York. Man, it was my dream. Well, when I got into the 1975 Whitney Biennial, it seemed to me that that might be my ticket into a gallery. So I took a year off of teaching here. I went up to New York. I rented three-fifths of what had been Andy Warhol's old factory on Union Square. I mean, I remember walking to see that when I looked at it, and Union Square was not the, the, uh, the, the upbeat place it is now. It was bums and stuff like that. And I said, okay, I don't even want to be walking here to look at a place. And two weeks later, I was living there. Um, and my, my goal for that year was I was going to work there, which I did. I did work, but I set out to try to get a gallery. It turned out that the Whitney Biennial probably was not a ticket into a gallery. What it probably was was a, a ticket to giving me the confidence to go there and do it.
And I mean, when you're trying to get into a gallery in New York and there are 500 artists for every slot, it is. it can be a humiliating experience. I mean, I remember going into one and the secretary starts lecturing me about my work. And finally, she saw the look on my face and says, you don't need to stew you. And I said, no, ma'am, I do not. I remember going into another and the guy says, we only look at slides at uh, 4.30 on Fridays. Come back then if you're interested. So I showed back up at 4.30 that Friday and two other artists showed up at the same time. And he said, I'm not looking at them this week. And I said, come on, that look. I made a lot of trouble to get down here. You can look at them. So he looks at the other guys, and I timed it. I looked at my watch. He, looked, he took 45 seconds total to look at their work and dismiss them. I guess he really liked mine. He took a minute and a half and told me to come back in a year if I was still doing stuff. Uh, you know, so it's that kind of experience. Well, fortunately, I met David Finley Jr., who was uh, one of the three owners at that time of the David Finley Galleries, which is quite large. They had 14 employees at the time, Madison Avenue at 77th Street. Uh, they were handling, um, they were handling, uh, they did, handled a lot of French contemporary. That was one of their sections. They handled a lot of old master resales. Um, they had really come into business uh out of Kansas City, and they, they did so through a lot of sales, very significant sales of some Charles Russell pieces. He, you know, he was one of the two great Western painters. Um, and that was another segment. And they were just, I didn't realize this at the time, they were just introducing contemporary American into their gallery. And I Ida Kohlmeyer, who was an artist I admired, was already showing with them. And so that was an in, that was that that impacted on me wanting to be there. Um, and I talked to them off and on for about a month and a half. And finally, David was down at my studio and he said, uh, I'm thinking we're in late November of 75. And he says, can you have me a show for February 76? I said, you give me a show if I can get to transportation. I never dare tomorrow morning. <laughs> and, I mean, he, he saw I had to work. I could do it. And so he set it up. And unknown to me, it was actually, I was their first actual contemporary American show that they did. I didn't know that till years later. He one time, we were talking, he, we were, year, years, years later, many, many shows, many, many years later, we're, the th David and I and a client are talking, and he says to the client, I have never taken an artist who walked in off the street. I decided not to point out to him that he actually had taken one that had walked in off the street. <laughs> so sometimes it just works out. Sometimes it just, yeah. You know when I when I when I got was I had that show in Atlanta that got me into the uh, into the Whitney Biennial. I kind of like to think that I had showed up. 300 times at the wrong place at the wrong time, and then all of a sudden I showed up one time at the right place at the right time. And so I think it, it's one of those things where you've got to have a thick skin. Right. Persistence, for sure. You've got to have persistence. I mean, it has, uh, for an artist, it has, for an artist who is a painter working alone in, I mean, there's many definitions of an art, but for a painter who basically is working alone in their studio, pretty good chance the person is an introvert to be able to thrive on that kind of existence. I mean, I have, I have had many a day where I've had 10 hours all by myself in the studio. I have had days uh, when I was single that I had gotten up, gone to the studio, not seen a person, and, and ended the day there. And then combine that with the extrovert that it takes to be able to go and approach galleries. Um, you know, I'm kind of like near the borderline. I'm really more of an introvert, but I seem to have worked out the notion of bringing the extrovert out maybe a little too much at times uh, when it's needed. 
Uh, although the extrovert tires me out, the introvert doesn't. <laughs> you said that you didn't get an undergraduate degree in art. Um, you've got both a master's and a PhD. Can you tell us just briefly about your education? Um, and then what led you to the position where you started teaching here and uh, at the university in Columbia? Well, um, as a as a as a public school student, I went to nine schools before I graduated from high school. Wow. Two and a half years was the longest I was ever in a school until I went to college. I proudly graduated in the lower half of my class. Um, I did not want to go to college, but I didn't know what else to do. Luckily, the University of Minnesota, where I was living at the time, had to accept any student who had graduated from a high school in Minnesota. They could accept you provisionally, which is how they accepted me. And I knew I couldn't get through college anyhow at that point. And so I thought, well, I might as well go hang out with my buddy Mike, who was an art major. Went over there and looked pretty good. But, you know, it just, it, it's not, it was not nothing I'd ever done. So, I, I mean, I wasn't going to be an art major. But I saw that the beginning classes were kind of boring, but if you were an art major, you did have to take those. But if you weren't, you, you maybe didn't have to take them. So I kind of shoved my way into starting in a junior-level painting course. And I remember when the guy was registering me, he, I, I mean, I was just, I was so persistent, I just, I, I wore him out, I think. Finally, he says, okay, 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 I'll sign you up. And then under his breath, I heard him say, in the other guy's section. <laughs> well, the good news was that the other guy was Ed Corbett, who was an astounding nationally known painter who was just teaching there for a year. I mean, you know, I, I, what can you say when you start with something like that? And then the next, the next teacher I got, Peter Buza, uh, he was also their temporary. He ended up staying on. And he was quite different. But both of them were right in the middle of that whole abstract expressionist thing. I mean, they were real artists. They weren't, they weren't college teachers who were in the art field. They were, they were out there artists. And it just lit my fire. So... Um, then I graduated from that with a degree in radio and television speech, and which I had really no sense that I was could follow up on. It, it that was not for me. I just where I'd landed, and I, getting into a graduate school was right tough at that point for me because I didn't have an undergraduate degree, and I, I luckily um, I got into then. I would, the University of Minnesota had already, at the time I was there, which was 1960 to 64, I had 42,000 students. Big place. Yeah. And I ended up at the University of North Dakota, which had this art department with five faculty members, one of which was art history, one of which was art education, and three of which were art studio. And they had two teaching assistant positions, which were already filled. But I had... I applied for it anyhow. Well, one of the guys, one of the two teaching assistants dropped out at the last minute, and I was the only applicant, so they put me in. And they admitted later they really didn't want me that bad, but they put me in. But I did a good, really good job for them. Man, I thought I was taking them to the cleaners. They paid me $1,800 that first year to teach three classes. They paid me... They, boy, they jacked it clear up to 2100 the second year, and I taught the same three classes, and I was head of design for the art department and head of design for the home ec department. I mean, you know, it, it's amazing. But, I, I, you know, I really worked and worked. My minor there was um, theater history, theater history, and I was doing this seminar thing with a theater history teacher, and I was coming near the end of it, and... Uh, an MA degree from the University of North Dakota was not going to set me off anywhere. And he told me about this degree in Ohio, at Ohio University, 
where they required a master's degree in a studio field, but the degree then itself was 100% academic. So uh, sort of the less you were in studio and the more academic you were, the better you did once you were in. I was, I, one of the things that the guys used to tell me from, that I still know from that degree, they said the thing that was amazing about me was that I kept doing actual artwork during the whole time, which it wasn't time to do. It was basically an art history degree, only it was spread across all the arts. So, I mean, it was the most fascinating group of people I've ever been around. There was an opera stager. There were writers. There were musicians. There were composers. There were sculptors. There were architects. And um, it, it just was... And you had to major in two things. My two majors were theater history and art history. And I actually sort of halfway selected them in that order, but, uh, you know, there it was. Well, when I finished that degree, colleges wanted, wanted people from that degree. It, 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 almost everybody in the degree went into administration because that, that knowledge across all the arts just lent to it. It wasn't my cup of tea. I, I wanted to get back to my work. But I actually applied here to be the head of the art history program. And John Benz, who was a brilliant, brilliant uh, administrator, was the head of the art department back then. And he uh, looked at my artwork. He said, what are you doing applying for an art history position? And I said, well, they're more available. They pay a little more. He says, we'll pay you the extra and put you in studio. And what he, want, what he was looking at was, um, as you may or may not know, sort of the standard studio teaching degree is an MFA degree, Master of Fine Arts. It's more than a master's, but having done both a master's and a Ph.D., I can tell you it's a lot closer to a master's than it is to a Ph.D. But the University of South Carolina was not quite at the point where they were respecting that yet. And he wanted to get graduate programs, so he was bringing in, and they had seven people in the department here then, which uh, now is enormous, you know. Um, he was bringing one person in in art ed, one in art history, and one in art studio. So he was hoping to get two PhDs, but he was hoping to get graduate programs through, and the more PhDs he had, the better shot he had. And so his eyes lit up all of a sudden. He had a chance at three PhDs. And so he took it and ran. And it was the ideal position for me. I wanted to come, I was purposely um, applying in the South. We'd lived mostly in the North when I was doing those nine schools, but we had lived in Texas for a brief time. And that was the only place that the weather made any sense to me. And so I wanted to come South. And of course, I got here, and the position was just ideal for me. And, um, I was an obsessive worker, both as an artist and as a uh, as a, a studio as a studio teacher. And my advancement was uh, in academia, thanks to John Benz teaching me how to operate. Was it? It, it was. It, it was the first time I. It really had phenomenal success in life. I mean, I was tenured after four years as a full professor, eight years out of school. Uh, you know, it just, it just whizzed by. He used to do things like, one of the things he'd do was he'd take me out to lunch every other week for a couple years, and we always went with two other people, and they were never, never from the art department. So what he was doing was he was training me to operate within the university as a whole, not just there. I mean, it's interesting, you know, to this day, if I run into John Benz, I, I can hardly treat him as a colleague. It's like, oh, yes, sir, yes. I mean, you know, the guy was just, he was, he, you know, I think John Benz trained me how to operate in academia. David Finley Jr. trained me how to operate in New York's, in the New York gallery world. And you taught uh, until when at the university? 2000. I was there for 31 years. I did not teach summers, um, and I took nine years of leave during that time. Full years? 
nine year, nine full years of leave. I didn't take it necessarily. In, I mean, it was one 12-year span where I taught every fall semester only. So that would be six years of leave in, in that 12 years. And what the, it worked great for both me and the university and the art department because what they did was they'd hire guest professors in on my salary. One time they wanted to do this big program where they brought in some hot shots from New York. They did that with my salary. Um, and it, it was a real necessity for me because when I was doing those, I had 14 solo shows with David Finley Galleries over the 35 years I was with them. And I was with them till 2010 when they went out of business. You know, by then the principals had all passed away. And, um, it, and the real estate had gotten very expensive. Well, yeah, the, the rent they were happy with was $1,000 a day, which they paid even on Sundays when they weren't open, right? They called it 30000 a month. And the rent was going, I don't know what it was going up to, but it was going way above that. And by then it was in the hands of uh, David, David Finley Jr.'s son, who I had met actually when he was a middle school kid. And um, he, he wasn't quite as devoted to being a New York dealer as, as some of his ancestors had been. And so it was a good time for them to close and get out of it. Um, but those, it, many of those 14 shows required 40-some paintings, about, about roughly half of which would be that 4-by-3-foot scale and half of which would be that 6-by-4-and-a-half-foot scale with, a, with some occasional larger ones thrown in. So maybe 20%, 20% of those, and then some odd sizes. That's a big undertaking, I mean, to do that, to do that, they weren't all that big, but to, to basically do 14 shows with even half of them that scale in a 35-year period, you, you, can't be, you can't be absolutely in the classroom all the time. And, you know, I was, I was probably an okay teacher. I was probably a really good teacher for certain people. But the strength in my teaching was the fact that I had a real art career going on I could support myself as an artist on what on what they were selling and, and for 15 of the years that I was with uh, Finley Galleries I was also with Dubin's Gallery in LA and they were I went, I went with them very soon after they had opened and I was with them till they closed in the early 90s and in that case my work not only fit into the gallery, but my work was one of a few artists' work that defined the direction of the gallery. And what that means is, like, with Finley, you know, 5% of the people who came into Finley were probably potential customers for my work. 85% of the people who went into Dubin's were potential customers for my work. So it was a much smaller operation than Finley was, but it was a it was an operation that uh, they were focused more. They were really focused on my image. Um, I feel like we've uh, stolen a lot of your time today. Um, could, anything else you'd like to share about the upcoming show or the works that you've got in the Koger Center? What, what's in the permanent collection? Those works were done over what years? Well, they were um, the show went up in 1990. The newest of the works in the show were done in 1994, and the reason that happened was because during the early years of the show, I owned the works, and we would occasionally switch out some things. Uh, eventually, as you know, then the university became the owners of the work through um, th through a generous grant from uh, Jim Moore Cadillac to honor uh, honor the, fa the, the father of the family who had started started that and the collection is named very specifically for him. Um, you've got that specific name nicely up on a plaque down there. Um, the earliest works in that show would go back to a 
about 1979. 1980, 1981, somewhere in that in that range. One thing about one thing that's developed in my thinking over recent years is the notion that paintings, if you're making paintings, you should start fast and finish slow. Start fast is pretty obvious. You got to get some momentum going. If you don't get going, you ain't making the painting. The finish slow is a little less obvious. I first started getting into that idea by trying not to finish my paintings because I get the feeling that if people feel like they want to get them done, 95% good can start to seem okay. And I don't want to do 95% good paintings. I don't want to do paintings just to get paintings done. And so I started letting that sort of expand. And it's, it's not like you wouldn't be doing anything because you'd have a lot of pieces going at once. Once during my most intense working time, I had 42 pieces in progress in my studio at one time. And what happens with that is you go months and don't get anything done. And then every day you go in for two weeks and finish a piece. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's bonkers. Uh, but what it does is they're, they're feeding off each other as you do that. And now eventually I've come to the point where I won't even, I won't even stop thinking about it. The, 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 the ending slow, what it does is once you put a finish on something, you quit thinking about it. If you don't put a finish on it, if you leave it open, it's still stirring around in your head. So as long as you can leave that open, the more chances you have to get one slightly richer element into it. And so I've, I've gotten to where I refuse to let the fact that I have finished a painting finish it for me. If I still can get my hands on it, if I'm still thinking about it and I got another step to go, I've, had, I've, I've got one painting that will be in this show that has been reproduced in two different publications, and you wouldn't know it was the same painting. It was finished one way as a very splashy horizontal landscape. It was finished a second time as a very subtle um, still vertical still life, and this time it is a very vertical still life with very thick paint with... Um, hieroglyphics carved into it. And so I think this group of work is, in a way, the richest group of work I have ever done in my career because I refuse to say they're done in my mind. My mind keeps going on them. I expect a lot of them are done, but it doesn't stop the pro thought process for me like to traditional finishing would. Well, I'm super excited that this is coming into the building next week. Uh, it'll be up for anyone to come see it starting March the 18th. Uh, we, we've left it as an open-ended uh, gallery piece right now, an exhibit, but we will be hosting an opening lecture and reception on April the 18th. More information can be found on that on the Coger Center website, cogercenterforthearts.com. Philip, thank you for letting your works inspire great art in the building for all of these years, and thank you for coming back and bringing us something new. Uh, I've looked at the booklet, but I know from seeing your works in person that there's something about being in the same space with them. And I'm, as you said, I'm excited because so much of your work sits in the sun, and you, I get to see it throughout the day, and I get to see how they change throughout the day, and I'm excited that this gallery uh, will afford the same opportunity. Well, yeah, you're 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 really uh, quite uh, on the on the mark, saying that it's different seeing the pieces and the reproductions. And in this case, um, the really good photographer Bill Barley, who uh, did all the photos for the this recent publication, was explaining to me that I had used colors in these paintings that cannot be reproduced by offset printing, and so. 
he said, fortunately, he said, I can fake it to an extent, and he's done a very good job of that. But there's a physicality to the to the there's a physicality to these paintings that no reproduction can possibly do. And it's been a great pleasure actually being back and being around to Coger and working with you, Nate, on this. Well, thank you so much. Uh, once again, uh, Philip Mullen's art is uh, it's entitled Mullen. 2017 to 2020. The gallery opens March 18th. Come visit us at the Coger Center. It's open 9 to 5, Monday through Fridays. And prior to any performance, almost any performance, you can, when you're waiting to be seated, you can come in, wander about the gallery, and, and check it out throughout different times of day uh, because the artwork's going to be truly stunning. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> The Coker Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at CogerCenterForTheArts.com, the official website for Coger Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit GarnetMedia.org.